0: This is a download from Newstalk 106 to 108. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking books on Newstalk 106 to 108.
1: him. Women adored him. But who was a real Ernest Hemingway? And was he a man tortured by his uber masculinity? Hello, it's Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill and you're very welcome to today's show. There is no hunting like the hunting of man. And those who have hunted armed men long enough and liked it never care for anything else they're after how did ernest hemingway one of america's greatest writers turn into a parody of masculinity and was a suicide in 1961 a critical blow to the american male psyche naomi wood author of mrs hemingway and dr neris williams from ucd's school of english drama and film puts the great papa on the therapist's chair
2: immediately after his death he was treasured as this heroic frontier man. But that image was also ruptured by his suicide somewhat. So I think people had a hard time drawing together the idea of Hemingway as this ultimate masculine image with the idea of his suicide. So there was a kind of mourning period and also a restructuring where people realized that there must have been so much internal suffering. Um, You know, Norman Mailer said about Hemingway that he had as much anxiety as it would have suffered.
1: And, an ox. and best-selling author Yong Chang, whose memoir Wild Swans, Three Daughters of China, sold over 15 million copies, talks footbinding, Mao, and rehabilitating the reputation of Empress Dowager Cixi, the concubine who launched modern China. This is a show about myths and heroes, masculinity in marriage, judgment, and rethinking history. But first, understanding the hard-living womanizing, super macho, Ernest Hemingway. On July 2nd, 1961, Ernest Hemingway, author of classics such as The Sun Also Rises, A Farewell to Arms, For Whom the Bell Tolls, and The Old Man and the Sea, the stereotype of hypermasculinity and heroism, committed suicide in his home in Idaho. 53 years after his tragic death, the myth of Hemingway still lives on, igniting both fascination and frustration. So what do we know about the real Ernest Hemingway? And was he really this sensitive, passionate, and exciting lover that he so handsomely portrayed himself to be? How much is fact? And how much is fiction? Well, unlike his public persona as the brave, boozy, war-seeking man's man, Hemingway was quite a fragile and vulnerable creature, prone to bouts of neurosis, obsession, paranoia and depression. He was a lifelong insomniac, a tormented workaholic and quite the perfectionist. He was known to spend all day writing only to end up with one single sentence. Well, without doubt Hemingway's writing and life has had a profound impact on world literature He's influenced writing legends like John Irving and Raymond Chandler. But here's the thing, this Nobel Prize-winning novelist is possibly more famous for his crazy, risk-taking, sexy antics than for his wonderfully economical and understated fiction. And what's even more ironic is that while Hemingway has achieved a degree of literary immortality, he is possibly one of the most misunderstood writers of 20th century American fiction. A writer, according to Dr. Naomi Wood, author of the recently published Mrs. Hemingway, was so good at being in love that he made a rotten husband. Well, early in the week, I got together with Dr. Nerys Williams from UCD and Dr. Naomi Wood, a lecturer in English and Comparative Literature at the University of London and discussed the extraordinary life of one of America's greatest writing heroes. I asked Neris about the Hemingway myth and how it's found its
0: way into the popular
1: imagination.
0: Certainly there's a myth about Hemingway. I know for myself that as a teenager I was very attracted to him and that could be from the films as well and being interested in Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall. But I think there's a kind of a masculinity there which young men are drawn to. Also that period of time, 1920s, 1930s, is somewhat glamorised as well and that sense of quite a pathetic um, lifestyle of moving around Europe and that sense of being the American presence in Europe. But certainly more than anything I think it's this style that really attracts people and it's easily parodied as well so anything that's easily parodied is normally quite efficient in delivering its message. When we talk about style a lot of people are drawn to Hemingway because of his stripped back
1: language very paired back. I know you've done a lot of work on his iceberg theory of
0: writing. This is a theory that's thrown around a lot about Hemingway um, particularly in terms of how he developed this very pared down style. It's basically a form of minimalism or minimalist writing also works by omission His idea is that what is omitted from the writing is just as important as what is being stated. So this is what he says in Death in the Afternoon, um, which came out in 1931. If a writer of prose knows enough about what he's writing about, he may omit things that he knows. And the reader, if the writer is writing truly enough, will have a feeling of those things as strongly as though the writer has stated them. The dignity of movement of an iceberg is due to only being one eighth of it being above water. So this idea of seven eighths happening beneath the text or not being stated, I think, is crucial to trying to think about what's happening in a Hemingway book. That's intriguing.
1: And Naomi, when we look at his private life, there was a lot left unsaid. He'd four marriages and they were passionate they were, challenging, and very, very odd. So can you talk to me about your own interest in Hemingway?
2: I had always been a fan of Hemingway, and I remember reading The Old Man in the Sea at school and kind of weeping and wondering about, biographically, about the man behind this text. I had read a lot of the fiction, and as Nareth was saying, I was completely intrigued by this dripped back bare, almost taciturn style, where he doesn't give away very much, and he certainly doesn't dwell on emotion for very long. Everything's very external. And then about five years ago, I started reading the letters. And it just struck me that the correspondence with the wives was incredibly kind of sentimental and incredibly, almost kind of treacly with all this kind of pillow talk and sort of baby language. Uh, he calls his wives pickle pot and love bug and mole friend. And I got really intrigued because you mentioned in your introduction that he's known as this kind of hyper-masculine, figure and he's certainly so fashioned as that and it struck me that in his letters he got real just the smallest of insights into him what he was like privately and it was the private Hemingway that really intrigued me and kind of inspired me to write Mrs Hemingway
1: And it's quite interesting that he was seen as very much a man's man he was big into big game hunting he enjoyed the booze he was a war correspondent so he very much pulled out the chest hairs and you know was very very male but he seemed to have been a very troubled lover a very paranoid paranoid lover, a very fragile and very vulnerable lover?
2: Um, I think, I think he, he must have been complex. As a husband. I'm not sure that he was paranoid because, I mean, in my opinion, in the first two cases, in the first two marriages, I suppose he's the one betraying his vows that he made. He's the one having the illicit affairs. But as you say, it was kind of tremendously confusing and the jams were often of Hemingway's own makings. And what I found curious was that when Pauline Pfeiffer came along and he was married to Hadley Richardson, and then when Martha Gellhorn came along and he was married to Pauline Pfeiffer, what was so intriguing was that he was, in my mind... Curiously passive, even though he'd taken an extra lover, even though he'd been adulterous. He kind of wanted the women to sort it out, or he was curiously unable to kind of have agency within the situation. And you can see that in the letters. He writes to Fitzgerald during the Pauline affair, you know, if this isn't all sorted by Christmas, I'll top myself, essentially. As if he kind of wanted someone to kind of deliver a magic antidote to this marriage at And it's the same in *Immovable Feast. He says, to truly love two women is the worst pitfall a man can face. There's no kind of sense of his own blame, I guess, in the situation.
1: And do you think the theatrics of his love life may be impacted on him as a writer? Yeah, I mean, I think occasionally he
2: used their characters in his fiction. This could be relatively negative. If you look at the rich wife in The Snows of Kilimanjaro, uh, which came out in 36, just as his marriage was really on the edge and he was just about to meet Martha Gellhorn, there's a terrible portrait of this kind of rich wife. Pauline Pfeiffer was also rich, who'd come to kind of corrupt his writing style, who'd corrupted his lifestyle in the presence of these kind of leisure class wastrels. Equally, you know, in the play that he wrote, The Fifth Column, there's a really damning portrait of this ambitious blonde called Dorothy, which must have been based on Martha Gellhorn. You, You can kind of see it. So, yes, I think the women were kind of inspirations for his fiction, but I think often it must have been quite hurtful
1: portrait. Neris, can we talk about his breakthrough book, The Sun Also Rises, Mm. published in 1926? How much of Hemingway do we see in that book? We all know that he was obsessed with bullfighting and bloodshed. So can you tell me
0: about the writing of that book? Right. As a background, I think it looks at expatriate Americans in Europe, very much considering that sense of trauma after the First World War as well. So I would argue that it's very much a war book or war writing in that way. Also I think you can see in that book the impact of him as a journalist as well. Bear in mind he was working for the Kansas newspaper. Use short sentences, use short first paragraphs, use vigorous English, be positive, not negative. You can see stylistically how his American job in Europe is working. But it's very much about a decadence to do with the nineteen twenties following the First World War. Also about intransigent relationships, wounding, moving from place to place. That book in it in and of itself, has been called a romance and a guidebook. It's been suggested you could actually use the book to walk around the streets of Paris, you know, to actually map out these cafes. During this time, of course, Hemingway was meeting up with the expatriate community, people like Gertrude Stein, who had a salon, who was collecting Miro, who was collecting Picasso, had a big impact on Hemingway's writing style, uh, even though they fell out. Also met with Fitzgerald 1925, a year before the book is published, met in Paris in uh, one of the bars they call the Ding. Bar. So you can see this kind of chronicle of an age. You know, we think of somebody like F. Scott Fitzgerald, the great Gatsby coming out the year before The Sun Also Rises, 1925. This idea of the American novel, this idea of a chronicler of the jazz age. The book is also referred to as chronicling the experience of what's called pejoratively the lost generation, people who had lost their way after the war. The idea of the heroic sticks in their gullet. So he is able to use a kind of a love story which doesn't quite work, but also a guidebook to Europe for Americans to negotiate the trauma of the war. But key, I think, in terms of thinking about his breakthrough is the aesthetic element of his writing, these kind of very short declarative sentences, the fascination with money, who pays the bill. We're coming up also to the ideas of not only decadence, but later on there will be you know, the, the, the crash. And at this point, you know, um, American money is flooding Europe. So it negotiates a lot. Again, coming back to this iceberg theory, as well male trauma and male impotence as well.
1: And male identity and I suppose the psychological trauma and psychological impact of the war. Was it his best book? Because a lot of people think it is.
0: I think it is purely because it chronicles an age and I find it less easy to parody than some of the other books and maybe for me it's the hunting that gets in the way. You have got a movement, the expatriate Americans in this book, they move between cafes but they also move to Pamplona, to the Fiesta um, in Spain and the is bullfighting there. But the way in which the bullfight is shown is more about what Hemingway talks about as aficionado, um, this idea of passion, this idea of initiation into a heroic environment and that you can read the codes. And a lot of this book is about reading codes as well, social codes, how to pay a bill and everything. But I think that what he does for me, which the later books don't do as much in, in terms of his almost swaggering masculinity, is that he really puts together an impotent man and a bullfighter, you know. So you have got this complexity of gender definitions and gender performance that's going on in the work.
1: And he hung around, as you said, with a lot of very influential writers and Mm. poets, Ezra Pound. He drank with Joyce. How influential do you think all these ideas and also Mm. some of the big artists that he was socialising with, how influential were they on his writing? Or how conscious was he of what they were doing and
0: how it impacted or coloured his view of the world. Well certainly if anybody's seen the Woody Allen film Midnight in Paris which kind of chronicles this age um, it's almost like you're bumping into poets and bumping into novelists. I think and what I get from reading a history of Hemingway's life is that he was a very good networker. He was very good friends with Fitzgerald. Certainly the great Gatsby's publication would have upped the ante in terms of thinking about the great American novel. Gertrude Stein who was known for her quite pared down writing but her absolute abhorrence of adjectives and flowery language. Pound equally. 1913 comes out with this great manifesto called A Retrospect, which is all about not using flowery language, not using abstraction. He says, go in fear of abstraction. Pound has an influence. Crucially, I think another writer who's very much underplayed in this period as well as Sheward Anderson, who was a friend of Hemingway's, who suggests that he go to Paris and bathe in this kind of artistic revolution of modern writing of modernist experiment that's happening in the 20s so there is a kind of coterie there but Hemingway definitely borrows I think crucially from those people the idea of writing as craft the idea of technique the idea of style that it's not just about explication it's not just about filling in a full narrative
2: yeah I mean just to underline Nereth's point that The Sun Also Rises is probably one of his best books. And I think it showcases, as Nerith was saying, that fantastic style that he's got. Just to add in my pennyworth, is that Hemingway is often kind of described by a lot of critics as a kind of poet and that he took a lot of um, his ideas from kind of imagist poets that were around, you know, during the war and straight after that he prized or privileged the image instead of the emotion and followed that William Carlos Williams refrain that there's no ideas but in things, that it was in the external kind of actuality in in the present, in the concrete thing by which that you would be able to tell the best story, that you could pack all your symbolism into those things. And yeah, I mean, The Sun Also Rises is, is a really interesting example, again, of the kind of iceberg theory. We know that Jake Barnes is impotent that there's been some wounding in the war. But what this loss is, we're completely not sure because Hemingway buries that. It's the tip of the iceberg that we never find out and that sight of loss is really vaulted over and there's, there's a really interesting work going on in that book in terms of mourning and how we lose and, and this idea that the First World War has really left a generation of men and women being unable to finish their mourning that they've become this kind of melancholic generation because the wounds and the losses are just too huge the butchery was too savage
1: Naomi can I ask you a little bit about his mental state during the late 1920s I know that his father committed suicide and Hemingway's relationship with his mother was fairly fraught to put it mildly I think when he was a child she used to call him his Dutch Dolly and dress him up as a girl and maybe in one ways you could look at his hyper masculinity and all his male posturing that it was in some way a reaction to being dressed up as a little girl when he was a young boy. So can you talk to me a little bit about how that impacted on his writing? Because by 1929, we had a farewell to arms and from pretty much then he was launched as the next great American writer. So how did he balance his creativity with his very fractured mental health? Because we start to see the heavy drinking, the violent tendencies, the very confused relationships and a lot of musical chairs in his private life.
2: 1920s. I wonder if you, if Hemingway was around, if you asked him about that period, he'd probably say it was one of the best. And you certainly get that in a movable feast. I mean, even with the the really sudden and awful death of his father in 1928, um, he's very sad. He writes to his editor that he doesn't want to talk about it. He feels too punk to dwell on it. But I'm not sure that I'm not sure that it is a is a rupture. I'm not sure it's from that point on that he suddenly intensifies his drinking. I think you know, you only have to read The Sun Also Rises to realise how much alcohol is being imbued and he had a great capacity for it. His father committed suicide and he became one of the most important kind of breadwinners in his family as a result of it, creating a trust fund for his mum and it intensified his need to work on the draft of a farewell to arms, which was being published the next year. He his mother for his father's death, certainly. Strange, strained relationship with his mother, Grace. As you said, she used to dress him up in in girls' clothing. She used to pretend that he was the twin of Marceline, his older sister. He, I think, always respected his father more and it was his father who taught him the kind of outdoor pursuits of hunting and and camping and fishing up in Michigan where they used to holiday. But even into his teens, and, and you can read the letters from Italy when he's recuperating after the wounding when he was a Red Cross ambulance driver, there's still a kind of respect respectful distance with grace and a sense of him at least enacting the role of loving son and um I think one of the most intriguing and kind of kind of open short stories he, he writes, A Soldier's Home, really shows what it must have been like when he came back to Chicago to convalesce because it just shows this incredible claustrophobia of a teenager who has been so free in Italy to conduct love affairs and drink and carouse with the soldiers. It really shows the kind of absolute constrictions of home. He then spends a year bumming about doing odd jobs and Grace Hemingway writes him an odd letter uh, using the metaphor of a bank account where she says, you have become overdrawn in your mother's love and now you must repay it. Odd kind of financial metaphor that he was somehow insolvent with his mother. And that relationship with Grace really, I mean, it was only to sour into the 1920s and by the 30s, it was probably irrecoverable.
1: Neris, I think Freud would have had great fun or certainly would have been fascinated by Hemingway had he put him on the couch. I know the Psychiatry Journal have done a study of sorts
0: on Hemingway. Psychiatry in 2006 came out with a special edition which just looked at basically a case study using Ernest Hemingway as a case study and particularly obviously his taking of his own life and consider and I'll just quote from it which is kind of an interesting one I think for any anybody who's interested in in writing life or private life, Hemingway utilised a variety of defence mechanisms including self-medication with alcohol, a lifestyle of aggressive risk-taking sportmanship and writing in order to cope with the suffering. Caused by the complex core morbidity of his interrelated psychiatric disorders. So there's the suggestion here that his lifestyle was actually a way of a coping mechanism. I mean, I would have grave worries about maybe just seeing Hemingway as some kind of psychiatric case because I think he exerted a very high degree of control. But you can see that maybe that control is what becomes his craft you know is a way of actually managing some maybe concerns that he may have had I mean they look at a psychiatric picture where they do use the word bipolar and alcohol dependence and also traumatic brain injury because of course he crashed in an airplane accident in Uganda 1954 the same year that he had his Nobel Peace Prize. And what's interesting there was he was trying to get
1: back into Entebbe the capital of Uganda and he literally went head first out of a plane and he seemed to have had no respect really for his body. It was it's unbelievable mm. that he made it up to the early 1960s because he literally had such a catastrophic death wish all through his life. Naomi, do we see this in his relationships? Like, what would have his four wives made of all of this? How crazy was he in those marriages?
2: I don't think he was crazy. I mean, I do have quite a lot of sympathy for him. Ada McLeish, the wife of the poet, asked why Hemingway had to marry every woman he ever... <laughs> And it's an interesting question. You know, if he'd had four girlfriends rather than four wives, we probably might look upon his case a little bit more sympathetically. But yeah, certainly with Pauline and with Mary Welsh, the fourth wife, they were expected to go on some pretty hair-raising adventures. I mean, you know, you mentioned the plane crash in 1954. There There were actually two plane crashes. One where the pilots, plane had clipped a telegraph wire and they had to camp out in the jungle uh, with a bottle of gin and and a bunch of bananas, apocryphally. And then there was a second plane crash where they crashed the rescue plane, which, as you said, used his head as a battering ram to get out of the plane. And then something like a week later, he was still planning the safari and a bushfire broke out and he insisted with crushed vertebrae, burst spleen, ruptured kidneys, you know, putting the bushfire out and then sustaining first degree burns with arms and belly. So what was it? About Hemingway, as he said, that had this kind of death wish that he kind of courted um, the Grim Reaper. I think he was extremely kind of, I suppose, foolhardy in many situations, but also incredibly brave. And he did drag his wife along with him in many of these situations, although I just like to point out that in the early 40s during the Second World War, it was probably Martha Gellhorn, the war uh, journalist and novelist, who portrayed more of this capacity for kind of crazy adventure um, she was the one who wanted to go to the war she was the one who wanted to get to the front she was the one who locked herself in a in a red cross nursing boat just before the d-day landings locked herself in the toilet in order to get that scoop so i think yeah i think although he was kind of the maybe the crazier component in the relationship you know i think martha gellhorn might have he might have met his match with martha
1: One of the things that has always fascinated me is how much of the real Hemingway do we actually know because he wrote tremendously interesting books very much the war correspondent very dramatic lifestyle plays up to this larger than life character he's very much this outstanding literary figure who was not just outstanding in his writing but lived in a very large and Mm. unique way but I'm wondering how much did he actually write up that was more than creative his role in the D-Day Landing a lot of people say that he very much kept a very back seat on that yet he wrote himself right into it. So it's very hard to actually say like what makes a great writer, whether half the stuff they write is invented. Who cares? They're a great writer.
2: Well, I think there's a different imperative with journalism because I think there is an obligation toward truth. And I think in novel writings, one of the wonderful things is that you have a license to invent. I think it's very interesting with Hemingway because I think he was such a kind of myth-making machine. But what I think is curious is that a lot of journalists um, made up things about him, and he chose not to refute them. So in part, the invention is done by the kind of media, and he was he was really the first literary celebrity that we had in, in the 20th century. Even when he came back from war, and he's not famous, he hasn't published anything, the journalist who met him on the dock was making up things about him, and he, he didn't choose to refute it. You know, he heard rumors that he was part of this knife-throwing band of Italian, you know, kind of renegade soldiers called the Arditi. He chose not to refute it again. So he was part of the myth-making machinery, but also had some sober reflections on Hemingway as a real person, as unphony, as unfamous, and wanted to keep that real. And I think part of the pathology, if we're talking about that, in the 1950s was the fact that his image had got kind of out of control. You know, this idea that he wrote these articles in Esquire in the 1930s and was how to gut a fish or how to shoot and skin a lion. And it just had become so over blown that any kind of aspect of vulnerability didn't fit within that portrait. But how how can you not be the vulnerable man? How can you not have a kind of sensitive side? So I think it all caught up with him in in the end. And you can see in his relationship with Fitzgerald, you know, Fitzgerald said, I suffer from melancholy and Hemingway suffers from megalomania. And in his relationship to Fitzgerald, you can completely see this kind of bullying, horrible, nasty side of him, which I think shows how his masculinity mythmaking had hardened and cemented and he'd become confused about who his friends really were. So when we see Hemingway's character, we see Hemingway part in Frederick Henry from A Farewell to Arms, the brave and intrepid soldier, but we also see Hemingway and Santiago and The Old Man and the Sea—a kind of crippled old man who's had no luck and who has come to the extent of his powers. And after that's published, I think in 1952, he really publishes nothing of note. And I think that's. It's a big book to come out with, and everybody read it autobiographically, I think, that this was a Hemingway who was weak and perhaps down on his luck and no longer able to bag the big fish, i.e. published a big, great book before it was savaged by the critics or these kind of sharks.
0: I just want to agree completely with what Naomi's saying, that in terms of the idea of the author as celebrity, we tend to think that this is a you know, 21st century phenomenon. Certainly Ernest Hemingway, you know, on Time magazine, when the book comes out, Fiesta, The Sun Also Rises, people... want to actually follow the fashion of Hemingway. I think there's the appeal there, certainly with an American sensibility as well, of the person who can basically see through what is being overstated, cut through the bull, essentially. And maybe taking us back to this idea of frontier man as well. You know, there's always that kind of deep-seated American consciousness and the background of these texts, even when they're set in Europe.
1: Can I ask you, Nereske, The Old Man in the Sea is possibly my favourite Hemingway book, although it's very hard to toss them up and try, you know, they do very different things. But if we were to look at his impact on literature, I know lots of writers would say that Irving has said it. There's a lot who have adored him and have been ultimately influenced by him.
0: Certainly, I think, you know, one thing that is often not, talked quite as much about would be Hemingway's short stories and how he renovated the short story by actually providing this idea of a mission in his work it really navigates something of the brevity of the short story it enables um, the modern short story to do things which previously it hadn't been able to do even with people like Edgar Allan Poe so you really get a use of psychology I think into the characters as a result you might think of people like I'm thinking of recent writings. some like Dave Eggers, the idea of flash fiction, the idea of the short short story even coming from Hemingway or something Hemingway-esque. I would think of Raymond Carver as well. Certainly that idea of a mission, the kind of also the background, the idea of the ordinary, which is something we haven't really spoken about. That sense of, even though there were extraordinary elements in the Hemingway narrative, you've got the background of war. One thing he did take from people like Gertrude Stein was this kind of depiction of ordinary objects. I mean, Hemingway in a short story can spend just as much time on describing how somebody pours a brandy into a glass as opposed to their background or which education system they've been through. So I think that he really does set this precedent for an idea of a really pared down, but as Naomi again was saying, this interest in things, in objects, in everydayness as well. Can you tell me about the Hemingway app? Yes. Looking around, there exists this thing called the Hemingway app, which you can download. Apparently, it can get rid of overuse of adjectives. It can pare down your sentences. So, for example, if you're writing a very convoluted and flowery sentence, it will underline in red and give you a marker where to split the sentence. And this is in the aim of having muscular, clear, direct, dare I say, masculine writing.
1: And Naomi, I'm conscious that we're three women looking at one extraordinary man. If you were to finally summarise his impact on contemporary literature and also in terms of Hemingway as a symbol for male identity, the idea of the macho, how would you surmise?
2: I think there's probably been two phases in terms of the reception of his image to start with that question. Immediately after his death. He was treasured, as Nerith was saying, as this heroic frontier man. But that image was also ruptured by his suicide, because, of course, committing suicide, taking, some might say, the easy way out, or at least kind of not honoring your obligations to the kind of real world, ruptured that image somewhat. So I think people had a hard time drawing together the idea of Hemingway as this ultimate masculine image with the idea of his suicide. So there was a kind of mourning period and also a restructuring where people realized that there must have been so much internal suffering. Um, You know, Norman Mailer said about Hemingway that he had as much anxiety as it would have suffocated an ox. So there was a recalibration, I think, of what we knew about the internal Hemingway and the external Hemingway going on in the safaris and the bullfights. And I think really interestingly, you know, you said we were three women, which I think is fantastic. I think recently there's been a, a further recalibration of how we received the Hemingway myth. I think an important biography came out called Hemingway's Boats by Paul Hendricks a few years ago. And I think for me, that really redressed the balance of how we can't take a reductionist approach to Hemingway's as only a kind of bombastic masculine figure that we have to appreciate his gentle side, his generous side. And that's something I wanted to show in my book as well. There's a great quote which said, Hemingway could be mean as cat's piss, but also as kind as a ministering angel. So I think more recently we are taking a subtler approach, a more nuanced approach to, okay, he did describe himself in these kind of bewilderingly masculine terms, but there was also something deeply serious, deeply intelligent about the author and someone who's absolutely committed to not just the shape of the sentence but the craftsmanship of the whole book. In terms of writers who are inspired by Hemingway, I don't think any of us can escape his kind of legacy. Just to add to what Nerith was saying, I mean the short stories I think are some of his best work and anywhere that you read dialogue which is anchored in subtext rather than in explicit conflict, you know, you only have to read The Cat in the Rain or Hills Like White Elephants to realise the enormous amount of work he's doing with subtext. So, I mean, I think Raymond Carver, as we were saying, is a natural kind of inheritor of some of Hemingway's craft. A writer who really reminded me quite recently was Kevin Powers, who wrote the book Yellow Birds, about his time as a machine gunner in Iraq. So he, his style was quite pared down, although had more indulgence of metaphor than Hemingway. But again, I think we remember Hemingway's early style, which which is quite pared down. But I would argue towards his 40s and 50s, that style does change. The, the line, sentences get longer. He gets more more flirtatious with metaphors and more willing to kind of show emotion rather than the external objects.
1: was Dr. Naomi Wood, author of Mrs. Hemingway, and Dr. Nerys Williams from UCD's School of English Drama and Film, talking to me about the master of style, the great Ernest Hemingway. Naomi's book, Mrs. Hemingway, is published by Picador and retails at about 15 euro so if you're looking for an intriguing action-packed sexy escape well look no further than this book it's great great fun coming up next we're heading east best-selling author young chang on the notoriously vain ruthless and ambitious concubine who launched modern china
0: On Newstalk 106 to 108.
1: And you're very welcome back to Talking Books on Newstalk 106 to 108. I'm Susan Cahill. If there's any books or authors you'd like me to review on the show, well, why don't you drop me an email at talkingbooks at newstalk.ie? It's always great hearing from you, really great. And it's refreshing to see all the differing tastes out there. OK, let's now move onto one very interesting lady. Young Chang is a formidable, disciplined and exacting writer. Born in Sichuan province, China in 1952 into a loyal political family, Young worked as a peasant, a steelworker, and barefoot doctor during the Cultural Revolution before moving to the UK to the University of York to pursue a PhD in linguistics in 1982. Young is a celebrated author of Wild Swans, Three Daughters of China, which tells a remarkable story of the lives of three female generations in China. Chang's grandmother, mother and Chang herself. Incidentally, Wild Swans is a biggest selling book of non-fiction of all time and to top that, she's also written Mao: The Unknown Story with John Holliday, her husband. Although banned in mainland China, Jung has been translated into more than 40 languages and has sold over 50 million copies of her books. Her latest book, Empress Dowager Cixi, the concubine who launched modern China, was published in 2013 and makes for an interesting, if slightly controversial read. For half a century, Cixi maintained her violent grip on China by poisoning and executing anyone who stood in her way. This ruthlessness even extended out to Cici's family, her many lovers and friends. Yet Jung's biography advances quite a vigorous defence of a woman whom history is often demonised and labelled. While Jung believes the history of China has been muddied by decades of spin by chauvinist and communist historians who have failed to give Cici and other female political and cultural icons their due credit, I have to say, It's an interesting take on a woman who was undoubtedly shrewd, dogged, self-obsessed and strategic. A woman who once quipped, Although I've heard much about Queen Victoria, I do not think her life is half as eventful as mine. Well, in July, I took a trip down to the Hay Festival Kells and queued up with the throngs of fans to meet with the courageous, if a little scary, young Chang. And thankfully, she didn't disappoint. She cooked quite a dash, decked out top to toe in her grandmother's traditional robes. And of course, when I did manage to steal her away from all of her adoring fans, it would have to book it down rain. Well, despite the odds and heavy duty sound effects, We chatted about China's strict censorship rules and the disappointments that come
3: with that. It's... Very sad to see my books banned in China. I mean, that's the place and the readers that matter most to me. Well, I mean, there is just um, nothing I can do. I just feel very sad. But, you know, people have been scanning the books into the computer for other people to download. Chinese tourists going to Hong Kong and Taiwan, going there to buy banned books. And so that's, you know, some sort of comfort. But does your mother get to read your books? My mother read my books, first two books, because I have translated my books into Chinese. And in any case, you know, with Wild Swans, my mother told me most stories. She's pleased. You know, the thing is this, my mother is not someone who often says, I want you to do something, or my opinion is this. I mean, she lets her children do what they think is the right thing. I mean, she never interferes. And I think she's pleased about the success of the book.
1: Tell me about why you decided to write about the Empress Dowager She is a very intriguing character in history For some people she's seen as a villain and others see her as a heroine and history has been quite divided in how it's judged her Do you think history has been very unfair to her and maybe misunderstood her or didn't recognise her for some reason maybe because she is a woman and maybe as a woman in history she was
3: overlooked History has been most unkind to Empress Dowager she. She has been cast as the villain, a diehard conservative and cruel despot. Very few people would say nice things about her. But when I was researching Wild Swans and when I was researching my biography of Mao, I discovered things that were completely different from her image. Things like she banned foot binding. She started women's liberation in China and she introduced the modernity to a medieval society. I mean, indeed, she transformed China from a medieval society into a modern society. She brought in all sorts of things, including Western legal systems, the free press, um, not to mention all the sort of industries, the railways and the so on. She also launched a project to turn China into a constitutional monarchy with an elected parliament. But, you know, sadly she died when the project just started. I think history has been unkind to her, partly because she was a woman. And I think women rulers in Chinese history have invariably been condemned. And the other thing is that in three years after her death, China became a republic, and the republicans didn't want to give her credit. They wanted to portray China as a place, as a mess created by her, and it fell on them to save China from her. Um, so there was a lot of propaganda by the communists and by the nationalists. What
1: is it like to somewhat rehabilitate a well-known character or a well-known person in history and run against consensus? What is that like? Because in some ways you're going against the grain. So is that very difficult? I know that there was over 10 million digital documents that you used in this book Mm -hmm. and a tremendous amount of research. So how difficult is that? And how challenging is that for you as a
3: writer? Well, you see, I would not write a book that says the same thing as everybody has been saying. I would only write a book If there are things fresh and original to say, and of course, inevitably, if you write an original book, you're going to be to some extent breaking new ground and against established views. So for me, that's the way I choose to write my book. I would only write a book if I have something new to say. Um, it's tremendous challenge of course but it's also great fun because I love to be a historical detective so to speak and to do detective work to find really who done it, to find new things to right the wrongs and to do justice to my subject. And were you able to forgive her for
1: some of her failings? She's human like any person and has strengths and weaknesses and I know she was a very passionate person and a very driven person?
3: Well, you know, some of the things I don't think it's a matter of forgiveness, because it's beyond personal failings. We must remember that she came from medieval China. She grew up when death by a thousand cards, this sort of thing, was standard punishment, and women had their feet bound and crushed and bound, and she came from that world. And she was also the absolute ruler of then a third of the world's population. So she was capable of immense ruthlessness. And those are the things, you know, they're facts, they're historical figures. I mean, she did all these things. She also did her murders. For example, the day before she died, when she knew she was going to die, she murdered her adopted son. The emperor. From her point of view, if she died and her adopted son was still alive, China would land in the hands of Japan because the Japanese had wanted to put China into their giant East Asian empire, which was the Japanese goal in the Second World War. And the emperor was ready to go along with Japan. And so, you know, how do we judge this murder? That's a you know, very difficult thing. I mean, she, in a way, she did her murder. For from her point of view, to save the independence of China. Do you think
1: that being a woman and you're researching another woman, do you think that gives you greater insight? If we look at what you've published to date, you produced a magnificent book on Mao. It was controversial. It was very thoroughly researched with your husband, John Halliday. But you were a woman looking at a man and judging and understanding a man. Do you think it's different when you are focusing in on from one woman to another? And how does that affect the overall process? Did you understand her motives any way differently to looking at somebody like Mao?
3: Well, yes, writing the two people are completely different. I feel it's much easier writing about the Empress Dowager, and partly because and of course the documents are more easily and readily available and partly because I think she was a woman and I feel I understand her motives. I understand her failings and her advantages and her successes much more than Mao. And although she was 19th century early 20th century she thought more like a modern-day person, and her thought process was more universal, whereas Mao's way of thinking was often counterintuitive. He was full of scheming. You know, he was single-minded, focused on power, and he was very Machiavellian. Actually, it was much, much more difficult to get into Mao's head, more difficult than the Empress Dowager. And of course, then, writing about a woman, the Fang side is that she had all these things as a woman. You know, she loved flowers. She was an accomplished gardener. She bred dogs. She created landscape gardening. And she revolutionized the Peking Opera, turning it from a village art form into the National Opera of China. She was a painter. And also she had vanity. And, you know, when she had her photographs taken in 1903, the photographer looked at the prints and realized they wouldn't please her (laughs) because it showed that she was the early 70. And so the photographer airbrushed the bags under the eyes and the wrinkles and, and so on and presented these, these you know glorious looking prints. And she was thrilled. She had these prints blown up to giant sizes and hang them all in the, all over the Forbidden City. I mean, all these I mean I could identify with. You know, I was working with an archivist. You know, he was trying to look for some political motives in this. And he said, but why? I said, but she was a woman. Woman. <laughs> I, I enjoyed um, discovering that side of her. And last
1: question, what would your grandmother make of your life today? Your success that you've had in your writing career, in your relationship to your husband, John Halliday, who you brought the Mao book out with? I imagine she would be unbelievably proud. What would she make of it all?
3: She would have been extremely happy. And also, she would have enjoyed so much more, in a way, than my mother and the success of my books because my, my grandmother loved pretty clothes. She, she loved jewelry. She, she loved making herself beautiful. And in a sense that my mother, who was a, more of a radical, didn't really care. So I think my grandmother probably would have loved all this. And I would have been much, much happier to be able to make her happy. But I mean, this is the saddest thing because my grandmother died by today's standards, very young. And I think she, she had a hard life first bound feet, crushed bound feet, then and a warlord's concubine, and then with daughter and son-in-law, communists. My father was puritanical and didn't quite understand her and suffering in the Cultural Revolution and all that. This is my eternal regret. And of course, also my grandmother then fell in love and married a Manchu doctor. And actually, as the, the Dr. Shah, this Manchu doctor, was very nice to my grandmother and my mother. And all the Manchus also have the Empress Dowager to thank for their survival.
1: young chang talking to me from a raining hay festival curls i have to say this year's festival lineup was really strong great mix of writers and workshops and the sun did eventually come out to shine now the music today comes from american neoclassical composer and pianist dustin o'halloran he's quite a player talented and sublime and lurking in the background is yo yo ma Okay, next week we're going to be joined by Mr. Mandolin, Louis de Bernier, author of Captain Corelli's Mandolin, Birds Without Wings, and Senor Vivo and the Coco Lords. He's a smashing character, a real charmer, and was great fun to interview. And I'll be looking at the rocky and troublesome history of The Dark Box, a secret history of confession with award-winning religious writer and historian John Cornwell. Okay, big thanks to Owen Holligan and Jess Carley, who helped out in research and the Artistic Double Act. That is Marianne Kennedy and Paddy Donoghue on sound. We've been talking books. Let's leave the last word to action man himself, the complex and never dull Ernest Hemingway, who once suggested, there's nothing to writing. All you do is sit down at the typewriter and bleed.